there is always kind of a complicated nature of having to touch it all and that tendency to feel guilty about saying anything negative. We have to grieve the whole person and we have to grieve the whole relationship and ourselves in that relationship and and take from it what, what will help us moving forward. You're a high achiever. On paper and through the eyes of others, you've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is, you feel unwanted, unworthy, and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over. But let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at karengoldfingerbaker.com. Have you ever had a conversation with someone that stays with you, surrounding you with warmth and delight as insights continue to pop up for days? This conversation is one of those. Listen in as my guest, the beautiful and soulful Nancy Pearlson and I talk all things heartbreak, pain, awakening, and gentle integrated healing. Pour yourself a cup of tea, get comfortable enough to get uncomfortable. You're in the Trauma Hiders Club. Nancy, I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad to be here too. Nancy has a connection to my sister, although she also has connections to my home state of Ohio. In fact, she grew up probably 10 minutes away from me. We didn't really know each other, but I knew Nancy's sister when I was a kid. And it's so great to reconnect with you. It's great to reconnect with you in this kind of full circle thing. Right, exactly. So here you are in the Trauma Hiders Club. What would you like to most hide right now? Gosh, I kind of feel like I, I'm stepping into everything that I'm hiding. So I'm, I don't really want to hide anything. I, I think that we all have something to learn from the, from the hardest lessons that we've been through. And when we're ready, ready to give them air, I think we can all learn from them and certainly for myself. I, so I don't, I don't really feel like I want to hide from anything. If that makes sense, is that the, I don't know if that's the right answer or the wrong answer, but I'm not hiding. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not hiding. Like I'm, I'm out there. I'm just out. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Has there been, well, I'm just going to ask, are you, or have you, are you, or have you ever been (laughs) a trauma hider? Yes, for sure. When I was younger, I think I didn't even realize how much trauma lived within me. And part of it was shame of upbringing and family history and family background. And I really think that when the biggest trauma of my life happened, it, 
it cracked me wide open. And all mm. of that stuff that had been hidden kind of came to the forefront and I was left to have to deal with it. Mm. So I stopped hiding at that point. I really did. I started just kind of owning all of my experiences and saying, okay, this makes sense that I am behaving this way because A, B, and C happened. And mm. I can learn from that, right? So, but I think my whole life, I kind of wasn't even aware of what was living inside of me until it got broken open in a, in a moment. Are you comfortable sharing what broke you open? Sure. My father's suicide in uh, 1996, he was 56 years old. And it, what's interesting is this year, I turned the same age as my dad when he died. And it was the 25th anniversary of his death. And so I've kind of had a lot of time to reflect on those 25 years and what happened, but, and, and how I've changed. And I've said this before, and it took a long time to get here, but I would never wish the pain of that on anybody. And yet I feel from, from my own perspective, and I'm not speaking for anybody else in my family or anybody else that's been touched by suicide. It took me a long time to dig out of that hole. But once I did, I, um, I'm, I'm grateful for the gift of kind of waking up to life. Um, there's a Mary Oliver poem that I quote all the time. Any one of my clients know this. That, um, And I, found, I, I came across it like 10 years after my dad died. And when I heard it, it was like, you know, when you know something's true, your heart starts pounding and you get chills. And it's like, oh my God, oh my God, this is so right on. And it, it's the Mary Oliver poem, The Uses of Sorrow. And all it says is someone I love once gave me a box full of darkness. It took years to understand that this too was a gift. And I would have never, I don't, I still don't call my, my dad's suicide a gift, but it gave me an opportunity to kind of reboot my life and to look around and see what I had and be grateful for what I had and to get rid of the things that were no longer serving me, mm. which has kind of become my purpose, yeah. right? My Dharma. Yeah. So I'm just going to go back to 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. You said you were broken open. I imagine that most people or the vast majority of people would not feel that way, would possibly feel stuck. Actually, I've no, I don't know how people would respond. What was it in you that could take this, this loss and open up to the healing process? I think part of it is nature and nurture, right? Mm. Like I, at that point had created, I had a really beautiful support system, really beautiful friends that had been in my life for many, had been in my life for many, many years who really stepped in to hold me. My husband is, you know, until that time, I think I might've taken him a bit for granted and still mm. today I do. Um, but for the most part, I mean, I, I looked at him and thought, what an amazing human being to be able to hold me. I had two young children at the time. I had a six-month-old and a three-year-old. And the, the needs that other people had on me and my inability to show up for them was astounding. Um, so I had, I had built a good support system who could step in when I wasn't there. I had an honest relationship with my family or honest at the time, what I thought was honest at the time. 
um, where I could speak my mind and take care of myself. But I also think that there's something, you know, when you said people get broken open, I think at some point we all have, and we probably have, I'm sure, I mean, I know for myself, we have more than one breaking open point, right? And that was my biggest breaking open point. I've had subsequent breaking open points since then, but I feel like when you have that time where you look at yourself and say, the world is no longer familiar, I cannot, I will not walk back into the world as the same person. That's that before and after. Um, there's something that kind of boots up inside of you that says, all right, we're going to do something. I remember standing outside waiting for a friend to take us to the airport to go to Dallas where my family was at the time and still is. And thinking to myself, like it was a really hot, sticky, humid day and thinking, I have to make something good come from this. Like it was in that moment, like this was hours after I had heard that my father had died and I was, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew that I couldn't live in that, that place forever. I didn't realize how long I was going to live in that dark place. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I had no idea how low you could feel yeah. and still breathe. So you lived in the dark place and how long did it take you to to come out of it? I would say that within a couple of years, I was starting to feel part of the world again. I was starting to connect with people again. I was, I was still pretty vulnerable, really vulnerable, but I had gotten involved at that point in, in working with other survivors of suicide as a volunteer, and then kind of got my energy and a little bit of focus. And I, and I really believe that it's an organic process that we can't push it. Mm -hmm. you have to know, I mean, I see so many people kind of pushing themselves to do so much. Like I have to make something happen. And I, I don't, I never, I still don't know what's going to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm still in this place of, I don't know, this is where I am today. Yeah. And this is what feels right. And I think that surrender that, that took place during those couple of years of like, I, I think this is all I can do is, is sit here mm -hmm. and because I'm not sure. And then to be able to shift gears and, and open up to see myself as part of the bigger world. And then how do I live in this world and add to it? Yeah. Because wow. of this experience. It's incredible, right? That you had these insights. Really, there's something in me that wants to say, like, you are a person who was sort of put here as a, as a gatekeeper to your own soul in a way right? Being able to take in this, not only this breaking open, but the breaking open of your world. Yeah. And not everyone could do that. And, and having to learn a new language, right? Yeah. And I think anybody, regardless of what the trauma is, whose life goes from before and after, who, you know, the lens through which we see the world changes completely, finds himself back at, back at Duolingo zero yeah. level one, right? right? Like, I don't even know anything here. Yes. Giving yourself permission to be ugly and messy and sloppy and be honest about I'm having a really shitty day today or anticipating what a shitty day is going to look like. And then realizing the day following that day is even worse or the hard work was done before and that day actually arrived and it wasn't as bad as you thought it was mm -hmm. going to be. So I think just permission to 
it took a couple of years to get permission because I really think I never thought I would come out of that hole. Yeah. You know, I knew I was changed. And when you say permission, this is not an external per- permission. Oh, it's, this it's is my own permission yes. to say, yeah, this is messy. You've never done yeah. this before. And I don't really know how we're going to do it. So we're going to have to access other people and connect and, you know, start to, to move back slowly and then figure out what comes next because we can't take it on all at once. If we just surrender a little bit to, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what this is going to look like. If you had told me, 25 years ago, this is what my life would look like. I would be like, I think you have the wrong person. <laughs> you know, you're reading the wrong person. That, that not, yeah. That's not me at all. No. Yeah. I love the pairing of I don't know and the result being surrender. Love that. Sometimes I think people, when I, when I use the word surrender with my clients, my clients see it as giving up, mm. right? A weakness, right? Wait, what are you talking about? Surrender. I don't want to give up the thing. I don't want to give up the. And in a way, yes, it is, it is no longer resisting, of course, but the the I don't know just feels so much more. It there's a comfort there. Well, and I think surrender, I, I think there surrender has a bad connotation in our mm. culture of like, I'm weak and I'm just yes. laying down and I'm going to let life roll over me. And when I think of surrender, I, I go back to a raft on, you know, in the Grand Canyon floating for 180 miles down the river for a week. And you can, you learn, right? You learn as you're going down the river, how to read it. There's the eddies, which are the whirlpools, right? Which are, you know, your kryptonite, your danger spots. And at the beginning, you get swept into those, you know, whirlpools all the time. And as the miles go down and as the current takes you there, you don't even have to work. Mm -hmm. You're going to get there. But if you can look ahead just enough to see what's in front of you, you can say, that looks like a danger spot. I need to work a little harder here. But if we try to go back to the place where we started, we're going to expend all of that energy fighting the inevitability that we're still moving forward. Right. And I feel like I learned how to read the river. Yeah. I got more comfortable getting caught in the eddies and believe me, there were times that I would get sucked down and think, Oh, this is it. And then pull myself out of it. But I feel like we all have that and that ability to do it and to the surrender comes in. I'm moving forward. You know, I have clients who will have a really bad day and, or go through the anniversary or leading up to the anniversary of of a loved one's death. And it's like, everything falls apart again. They're like, I'm back at square one. And I'm like, no, 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 you're a year down the river. It's Mm -hmm. a whole different place. And so I always say that the emotions can be as intense. You know, the waves are as intense 25 years later the difference is, is that there's space between getting knocked down by them. Mm. So, you know, feel the feels around this. Yes. And, and as a clinician, I always say, like, I would imagine if I said, you don't have to feel, wouldn't it be great? You know, people will say, I just don't want to feel this anymore. And I'm like, really, is that true? You really don't want to feel this anymore. Do you want to get over it? Like, no, you know, I, I, there's a piece that wants to hold on because if I don't feel this intensity, then somehow I distance myself so much from the relationship that it no longer matters. And that's not what people want or need. We need to have 
that connection to all of our experiences so that every once in a while when that neural network gets lit up, we'd be like, oh my God, I feel this and this is uncomfortable. And then we can feel ourselves kind of relaxing like, and noticing, oh, I can do this. I can do this. Getting caught in that ed- eddy and then being able to pull yourself out without being prostate on your bed for days. Right. Yeah. Nancy, I'm curious, what are the effects of unresolved trauma and grief that clash or combining, maybe it's not a clash, when unprocessed trauma meets grief? So I think all loss is traumatic. I really do. I mean, I think there's an element of trauma to to all of it. And I think that each and every one of us, if we look at our lives, we think there have been, you know, we talk about it in in this world of like big traumas and little traumas, capital T's and, and, you know, lowercase T's, but a trauma is a trauma. You know, we have these neural networks in our body that hold trauma. Our, Our nervous system holds the trauma. So our frontal cortex, which is the way that we kind of share our story, right? We create, we have the words to fuse the experience and then create a cohesive narrative so we can tell people what happened. Oftentimes, immediately following a trauma, someone will be able to kind of give you the reporter version, this is what happened. But what you notice is this disconnect from head to body and trauma is stored in the body. So how does unresolved or complicated grief or any of these emotions come out later is as soon as we feel abandoned, as soon as we feel fear, that neural network gets lit up because mm-hmm. our nervous system doesn't have a clock that says, hey, you know what, that happened a while ago. Right. It, it feels that feeling and says, oh, I know this and I don't like this and this is how we respond. So until we get comfortable saying, this is what that feeling is, this is what that emotion is, and we can slow it down and spread it out and say, this is familiar, right? And be able to process it through that's going to continue to get lit up, mm-hmm. you know, so people who love to distract themselves, who, you know, keep themselves really busy because I, I don't want to go there or if I'm quiet, I think about it or I get these images. I don't want people to, you know, I'm not, I'm not all about exposure therapy. Mm-hmm. It has its, it has its purposes, but what I want to learn or teach people how to do is that they have the ability to titrate in and out of those difficult experiences to touch a little bit of that emotion. And I always think of like, I describe it as like Pac-Man. Remember mm-hmm. we like, just like eat up. So there's this big mass to eat of trauma. And if we can take a few bites, the next time that that feeling gets triggered again, it's going to be a little less intense and a little less intense until it's always going to be there. And I think when I, you know, when I do EMDR with a client, it's like, they're not going to let, the sensation get down to zero because they want to hold a little bit of that charge. Right. And I, and I think we always have to do that as humans, but does it impact the way you live your life? Does it, does it keep you from living the best life that you can? If that answer is yes, I can't do this and I can't do that. Then we need to try to get it done a little bit more. But I think that it's allowing people to, again, grow that muscle memory of, I am capable of sitting in this discomfort because over and over what we find is people like trudge through it and then something happens and they collapse again. And they're like, you know, why is that? Because I didn't do my work early on. And it's, it's a constant, right? It's a, it's a noticing what shows up, 
giving it the attention that it needs and then deciding, do I hold on to this? Is this something that I want to hold or am I ready to let this go and create a little bit more space? Yeah, really nice. What would we see if we saw unresolved trauma Mm -hmm. and what would we call it? Unresolved grief coming together. Let's say we're not processing. We're not aware. We have never gotten support. How would that manifest? What, what sort of behaviors would we see? We would see an overreaction perhaps to a similar loss or to another loss around us or in our orbit that we would see that. And we would It would almost be an inappropriate, too much emotion, a shutdown. We would see avoidance of places. You know, I can't go down that street because if I go down that street, that I pass that cemetery and I can't do it. It's not being able over time to do and appreciate other people's joys. So for instance, and I I am not a... I don't want people to feel like they have to push themselves to do things too soon, to notice what you can do and to create boundaries. So for instance, a parent who's lost a child, whose best friend is now getting married, right? That there's going to be sadness and trauma there. And so creating good boundaries around yourself of maybe saying, I want to show up for the ceremony, but it might be too much for me to stay for the party, right? But if in 30 years from now, we still are unable to go to other people's celebrations and we still can't connect with people at both edges, both ends of the spectrum of life, the really hard times and the really happy times, then I think we're we're seeing those unresolved emotions show up. If I can't tolerate it, then something's not not okay. And I, and I talk about living into the edges. Like Mm -hmm. if you're going to feel joy again, you are going to have to allow yourself to touch the deepest part of that pain. Because if you're blocking out any part of that pain, you're also blocking out the ability to feel joy. And what I, what I often say is like, when you step into it full on, the world becomes technicolor. Mm. And you laugh harder, you cry harder because you know what joy feels like and you also know what pain feels like. But that in-between space for a period of time feels safer. And I think giving people permission to say, no, I don't, I'm not ready to, to go there yet, right? And my, my, I've had clients say to me, well, I'm afraid to go to the vortex. Mm. I'm like, I get it. I get it. And I'm not telling you we're going to jump into the vortex. We're not jumping off the high dive into this. What we're going to do, our work together is taking slow steps towards it and taking small bites of it. So by the time you get to what you perceive as the vortex, we've already processed enough of it that you're going to look into that black hole and say, oh, I did that. Yeah. Right. And so when we see our lives getting smaller, that's when we have kind of that intersection of unprocessed, unresolved things that I'm afraid to do over things that I won't do or relationships getting kind of side going sideways Mm -hmm. at strange points. All of those things I think are indications of kind of unresolved stuff. And we don't often know. Right. It's the six-year-old, you know, whose dad died when he was four 
who his goldfish dies and he's hysterical. And the mom says he didn't even cry when his dad died. And I said, because he understands it at a different level now. So the tears for the goldfish are also fused with the tears from the death of his dad. And as we age and as we hold our losses, they're cumulative in nature, right? So each one pulls the threads of the other one. You know, we're not separate books, we're chapters. And in, in, in a, it's not a short story. Like, a, like we're not compilations of short stories. We are threads from each chapter is woven. So if we look at where we are today, there are threads of our childhood chapters that are woven in. And there will be threads from, from where we are today woven into the chapters further down the road. We may look different, but there are still the essence of who we are and the essence of our experience that gets carried through. Yes. Yeah. I'm curious about this term, which I recently heard, complicated bereavement. Mm -hmm. Am I remembering the term well, right? Complicated grief, complicated bereavement, complex trauma, all of these, all of these yeah. pieces are, when I think about complicated grief, right, there are, there are things that make people more vulnerable to experiencing complicated grief. You know, much of that is about the, the relationship they had with a loved one, right? Mm -hmm. Was it a straightforward relationship? And FYI, no relationship is straightforward. So they're all complicated. The manner of the death, right? Was it a violent, sudden death, whether it was suicide, homicide, a car accident? There are complicated pieces of that. Was it an overdose? Had there been 15 years of substance abuse that you know led up to it and the trauma of the family, the wearing mm -hmm. down of the resources to mm -hmm. be able to, to function well have been, have been depleted. Is there a vulnerability, a, a family history of mental illness that might make a terrible death or a loss really, really kind of the tipping point for, for activating that? All of those factors and the support system around the person with, you know, in isolation, it's really hard to dig yourself out. It really is. And this is why as humans, we are meant to connect. And so, you know, looking at kind of the number of vulnerabilities that you have around a loss, and then also looking at the supportive factors, you know, to help us kind of move through it. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. What I'm taking in is we are all either we've experienced or we will experience loss, right? Yeah, well, you're, well, I always say if you're human and you're lucky enough to love somebody, you, right. this, is, this is universal. We're all going to feel it at some point. And yeah. I heard a comedian say, not all people that die are loved ones. And so there is always kind of a complicated nature of having to touch it all and that tendency to feel guilty about saying anything negative. We have to grieve the whole person and we have to grieve the whole relationship and ourselves in that relationship and, and take from it what, what will help us moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to where I was with, we either will or have experienced loss. It's beautiful to hear what you're bringing on, you know, the healing aspect and the, the support and the community and the resources. And I have this aching in my heart for those who have not done work to whatever work is, who haven't 
looked within or had the opportunity or chosen to get some help around what is, I imagine people listening to Trauma Hiders Club have have a experience that was too fast, too soon, too much, right? That's definition of trauma. And so what I'm hearing is an invitation for all of us to connect with that ache that we have within and if possible to, to get help, to mm-hmm. find a partner, whether it's someone they can count on or somebody who is actually like trauma informed or whatever kind of therapist, like get that going because loss will happen. Yes, exactly that. And I also want people to recognize, I think we all do this. You know, you kind of look back and you say, oh, I fuck that up, right? Oh, I just didn't do that right. And the reality is, is that we all do things to adapt to our situation and our surroundings. And that's a survival technique that as human beings, we have. And just because we chose one way does not mean that that's it, right? That we always have the ability to adapt and to change and to recognize and to grow and to get smarter like our smartphones. And so to say, that's what I did then because that's, that's what I knew how to do. Those were the tools that I have. And where I am now, I'm noticing that I'm not happy in these areas. And that way of, of functioning and adapting and living doesn't feel so good now. And I may not be sure of what comes next, but I know that I need to do something. And that kind of impetus to change is really when it feels so uncomfortable or when you look around you and you think something's not right, right? And you may not even know what's not right, but you just know, I don't feel right. Mm -hmm. You know, this doesn't feel good. And that we always have the ability to change. And I'm going to, I'm going to butcher the quote, but Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, kind of the main theme from that whole thing for me was, you know, there's the stimulus and there's the response, right? This thing happens and we respond in between the thing happening and our response is the space. And oftentimes the stimulus happens and we react and we go to our knee jerk pattern reactions. It's like my Carol King, you know, tapestry album that has this giant skip. And I don't even know the words because every time it comes on the radio, I'm like, where'd that verse come from? Because I just immediately in my head go to the next verse because my record skip. And so it's the same thing of kind of recognizing those knee-jerk reactions and taking that space Mm -hmm. and slowing down and pausing and saying, whoa, what just happened? Yeah. And instead of reacting, responding, right? So as he, as Viktor Frankl said, you know, we use that space for growth, for awareness and change. And when you are traumatized, when you are dealing with hard things, it is really hard to take that pause. And I would encourage anybody as often as they can to take that pause and and to sit and to reflect and say, okay, what's happening? What am I noticing? What is this and what's coming up? And how do I move forward from it? How do I want to respond? Because what I want to do is call so-and-so and scream or lash out or go eat a pint of ice cream or you know, get high on whatever you get high on to to numb it out, right? That's how I'm going to do this because it's just too damned uncomfortable to sit in this space. 
And I'm saying that the only healing comes when we recognize our own power to step into that space and say, I can do this uncomfortable thing. Mm -hmm. And then, as I always say, like, notice that moment where you start to feel a little bit better Mm -hmm. and say, oh, I did it. I stepped out of the vortex and I was able to get out. We're so capable of change always until the day we die. Yes, absolutely. One of the ways that I first learned to be in the space between what happened and how I reacted, um, and there's no genius here, but I started to just put my hand on my heart. And it was a simple- As soon as you did that, I like, did you see me? I was like- Yeah. (sighs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no genius in that. It didn't cost me anything to learn it, right? Um, it was my invitation to myself to just slow down, get in touch with whatever was happening within. And by the way, I am someone who lived with unprocessed trauma for a long, long time. So identifying, I could identify sensations, right? Like my stomach is churning or I just- kind of puked in my mouth, or I have a tightness in my chest that I could do, but identifying the feeling, the emotion. Yeah. The, I'm sorry, the emotion, right. Feeling is a different thing. Yeah. The emotion behind it. That is, that's something that I'm practicing each day still to this time, to this day. Well, think, think about even the, the, the words we used, mm-hmm. the words we use, it was heartbreaking. It was a gut punch. Yes. You know, I felt beside myself, right? These are all terms that kind of explain the physiological response in our body because that reptilian survival mode kicks into place. And so, you know, I, I had a lump in my throat. I couldn't swallow my heart. I felt like someone was sitting on my chest. These are all somatic responses. And so to get curious and say, okay, wow, I feel this in my, in my chest. That's, that's sadness. That's, you know, and oftentimes, you know, it moves from one, like it goes from panic to sadness to then, you know, whatever other emotions. And if we allow that thread to kind of unfold itself, then we make sense of it, right? Then we can start to engage the higher levels of our brain to create the the narrative, right? My whole focus with my clients in in whatever way they can is let's find a way to create a cohesive narrative so that we're not just, you know, sharing it as a, you know, this is A, B, and C, this is what happened. It's, I can share my story with you and it makes sense the way I share it with you. Like, how do I, how do I want you to understand who I am as a result of the experiences that I've been through? Yeah, I love that. Really beautiful. I was just going to ask you about working with your clients. Are there specific modalities that you use? Does it, how do you connect? Um, I'm a trauma-informed therapist and I kind of came in the back door somatically after my dad died, I was, was not a clinician at the time. I found yoga and mm. I, it took a long time to find yoga because it took a long time to sit still, yeah. you know, and everybody thinks of yoga as like arm balances and inversions and hot and sweaty. And actually the practice of yoga is just, I mean, yoga means to yoke, to connect. And so it's this connection in all ways to our body. 
And so when I work with my clients, it really is, I use a lot of different modalities for over 10 years. I ran a program called Connecting Through Yoga, which was a yoga bereavement program, which for so many people was the first time they slowed down and had to listen to their breath and notice that when they slowed down, how uncomfortable they felt and incorporating some movement and noticing, wow, that's what my calf feels like, or that's, oh, when I lift my arms up, or that's an expansive breath, or when I open my heart, literally draw my shoulder blades together on my back and peel the armor away from the front of my heart. I cry a lot, right? And so that invitation to kind of breathe and slow down and to connect not just with the physical practice of yoga, but with the philosophy, kind of the the language and so many of the um, just just the philosophy of yoga and the way that it teaches us how to hold disappointment and discomfort. Um, and that's something um, that I, I work with a lot with my clients. I also use somatic experiencing, which is Peter Levine's work on um, the nervous system and, and moving through the nervous system. I also use a practice called EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. All of these processes, it sounds like fancy titles and words, but basically it's all somatic information of, I want to hear your story. I really care about your story, but I care more about the story. Your word, your mouth doesn't have the words to share yet. I care that when you tell me that your leg is twitching, I notice that when you're telling me that your whole face is red, I notice that your fist is clenched. I notice that there's tears running down your face. That's the body telling a different story. And that's, that's first chapter. That's the first layer of understanding how our body is protecting us and holding this experience for us and getting in touch with that so that we can start to feel more embodied because most people whether it's a loss by death or a job or abandonment, incarceration, you name it, it's all taken in our body, any trauma. And so for people to kind of recognize that that's the first line of defense and that's what makes us human. And also what makes us human is the ability to process through that. We are so bad at sitting with the discomfort. You know, it's like, if you ever see somebody fall, like wipe out in the street, which I do, you know, the instinct is to jump up, brush themselves off and just, you know, move forward. Like, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. But just the fear of falling, like every time they go to that curb again, their nervous system just gets like, oh, this is where I fell. And if you look at animals who like get into a fight or whatever, they walk away and they shake, literally shake. So they shake the trauma out of their nervous system. So the next time they see that dog, they're like, Hey, how are you? You want to go, you know, you want to play. And so we lock that trauma in and keep going animals. If you look at, you know, any Peter Levine, if you go to his website has some amazing video on, you know, animals in the wild who, you know, have been attacked by a predator. And then the predator goes off to get some berries to eat with their meat. And they realize they can get away and they stand up and they're kind of stunned. That's that freeze. And then they shake, right? There's a shake that happens and that's shaking the trauma out of their nervous system. And then they can go. We don't do that. We lock it in. We just armor up and we move forward and it's always living in us. And when we recognize that all of those little traumas and all of those big traumas 
are still in there. Some live in the same neural network that get reactivated time and again until we can befriend them and say, I see you and I feel you and this is what happened. And of course you were scared and making peace to a certain degree with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to note for listeners that soma means body. And so somatic experiencing is the body experience of the trauma. Yeah, the somatic experience, the physical, the physical experience. I mean, again, I couldn't, I feel like I was going to throw up or I have this knot in my stomach. That's a somatic, a body response. That's a nervous system response. That's level one reptilian brain responding, saying, wake up, something's going on, right? Pay attention. And so we think that these somatic, these physical responses are bad but actually it's an adaptive response to being human to say, open up, you might be in danger. And are you in danger because there's something in the present that's happening that we need to be watchful of? Or did something happen that that fired up an old memory that made you feel like you were in danger? And when we can engage the head then in that process of saying, oh, isn't it interesting this, I'm feeling this because of this, Mm -hmm. right? Then A and B equals, it it all starts to make sense. Yeah. I'm going to shift a little bit to you. Mm -hmm. Nancy, what are you most excited about in your world right now? The unknown. Mm. I don't know where I am in terms of, you know, I am, um, I'm most excited that we're starting to kind of turn a corner on what the world might look like Mm -hmm. moving forward and trying to reorganize how we're going to to be in this space and occupy it. I'm excited that telehealth is here and that I can spend time doing my work from other locations and taking care of myself in ways Mm. that I haven't been able to do. Um, And that makes me really happy. And it also gives me permission to, you know, see family and friends in a way that I haven't been able to do because I can, you know, I can work and then I can be. And so that's what I'm excited about. I don't know. Love that. The, the change, the change is, is happening and we'll see where it goes. Yeah. What's been most helpful for you today being a guest in the Trauma Hydras Club? Kind of sitting in my own, like noticing my own nervous system because mm-hmm. I'm not real comfortable doing these things and just, you know, talking about nervous system response. It's really it's good to go back to that space of feeling a little uncomfortable and kind of not knowing what's going to come next and be like, okay, we'll see what happens. So for me, it's a, it's a lesson. It's a humbling experience to kind of not be in control of which we never actually are, but to really pay attention and and notice my own kind of like nervous system. I love that. I, I love that. Well, as much as your nervous system was firing, which is a good thing, you showed up alive and with really wonderful content. And I have no doubt that listeners of the Trauma Hiders Club will gain so much from hearing this conversation. So I want to thank you for showing up and showing up beautifully and brilliantly and bringing, bringing to us today so much important conversation, so much important information and a spirit that is really beautiful. I really loved having you here. 
Thank you. It was a, really a gift to be able to be here. Thank you so much. I hope it does help. Thank you. You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, discover the rules of Trauma Club. Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.